Welcome to the Commercial Disco, the journey of commercial discovery, the only show dedicated to the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Hello, I'm James Riley. Welcome to the Commercial Disco. I'm here today talking to Nick Thurkelson, co-founder and chief executive of Brisbane-based AI company, Max Kelson. Welcome, Nick. Thanks, James. Great to be here. I'm going to try not to call you Max Kelson because each time I've spoken to you, I think I am definitely going to call you Max Kelson at some time during this conversation. That's okay. I've been referred to as Max on, you know, global conferences through to emails when people have asked, when do we get to meet the Max Kelson? So <laughs> I, I actually love the name. So, I mean, you, you're five years in and, and we'll get into where it came from, but, uh, you know, it's got a very Max Headroom feel about it, which I think is hugely appropriate for the AI, AI sector. You and co-founder Ryan McStay, uh, who's now Chief Product Officer with, with you guys, I would have to say are quite atypical founders of a company like yours that has been so successful in the AI field, given that you're both from non-technical backgrounds. So we'll get into a little bit about that, but also quite atypical in the structure of the company. You haven't taken on VC or vast amounts of VC. So why don't we start there with the genesis of the company? Where did you come from and why did you get into the business that you got into? It's a very good question because we are atypical, as you say. So Ryan, my co-founder and business partner, he was actually studying a PhD in psychology and we, we lived together at the time. And I was studying a law degree, which you know was sort of my mid-20s uh, life crisis that I decided that being a lawyer sounded like a good idea. Pro tip to all the young players out there, it's not a good idea. <laughs> and uh, it's sort of the observation that Ryan and I had both you know, sort of working in and around technology, I was sort of consulting for a number of, of organizations on their technology strategy and, and, you know, bits and pieces around cloud and things like that. And, and Ryan had, had been involved in technology during, you know, his studies. Our observation was that many companies were collecting a lot of data at that time. I, you know, it's this 2015. So, sort of right in the boom of companies like Coles setting up, you know, or Woolworths setting up rewards programs to harvest data about their customers. You know, people are on this big data push. But what we saw was that whilst the collection of data was picking up, the application of that data or or its its use in things more than just a dashboard or, or business intelligence was quite limited. And that was the really the the hole in the market that we wanted to go after was to help businesses that had created these data assets actually use them to you know, provide some kind of value-creating service on top of it. Okay. And you're effectively a, a bootstrapped organization. You founded in 2015, which is, I don't know, with the National Innovation and Science Agenda, it was when ideas boomed, startup land really kind of came to life. So describe the company now. What kind of sectors are you working mostly in? How many employees? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, so we're just under 50 employees at the moment and a number of open roles, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, which hopefully will push us over 50 soon. In terms of sectors, we're predominantly focused on the healthcare and life sciences sector. So we've got you know clients from top tier pharmaceutical companies all the way down to providers and public health systems and EHRs. But we do have a, an interesting business on the commercial side 
We've worked with you know great Australian businesses like Woodside. We've done a lot of work that's public with uh, Domino's here in Brisbane, of course, the big banks and others. So we've got a really sort of interesting client book, but increasingly healthcare and life sciences is you know our primary market that we're operating in. Okay. And when we talk about healthcare and life sciences, what are we actually talking? Where is the application of AI and is it with public sector health or is it with you know insurance sector health? Or- yeah, we're seeing the application of AI right across the sector. I, I think the observation of, you know, and, and for us, we're very much in the delivery, healthcare delivery and, and side of the equation. So we're not, we're not really operating in drug discovery. We have a research and a footprint in diagnostic technology. So genomics and companion diagnostics, which is really looking at, will a patient respond to a certain treatment? And so that's an area that we've been interested in a long time. And increasingly operating in. But a lot of our work is either logistical supply chain level, which you know, there's lots of innovation needed from distribution, manufacturing, and the, the you know, delivery of healthcare day-to-day, as well as in the applying you know, computer vision to diagnostic problems like skin cancer and so on. So we've got a, you know, this sort of emerging sector of software as a medical device or AI as a medical device is, a, is an area that we're increasingly active in as well. So there is a a huge spread of application of of AI in in the healthcare sector. And as I said before, public organizations, the likes of the healthcare system here, as well as big private organizations, you know, large pharmaceutical companies and and private providers. Uh, Health insurance, not so much, but we, we have done a lot of work in sort of revenue cycle management more around providers and, and software providers in the sector. Okay, let's talk about the business model just for a minute that uh, Max Gelson has. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, you've got an AI platform that I think you've described to me previously. It's sort of a, an 80% built-out platform, and then you have a, a services business, a business that engages with customers and tailors that platform to their specific industry need or, or commercial need. So, And then using the, the services business effectively as the growth engine for um, building the business out. Is that about right? How does that platform work? Absolutely. So the, the platform that we've developed over the last couple of years here is really a best practice view of how to do what we consider high-risk machine learning in practice. And so I think the distinction there is if you're making a, a decision about whether a customer is going to churn from a telco or not, this isn't a particularly high-risk decision, right? If you get it right or if you get it wrong, in aggregate, that predictive power is useful to that business in that it might be able to reduce the number of customers that churn. But at a micro level, at a single inference level, it's not that important, right? But if you diagnose someone with a certain type of cancer using a machine learning algorithm, that micro level decision is incredibly important. And the amount of rigor that you need to put around ensuring that that decision is made correctly is different to that of, say, a customer churn model. And this might be the same in if you're making a credit decision about a customer or if you're making a supply chain decision about you know, which hospital needs to get which medical devices to be ready for you know, trauma surgeries. These decisions at a micro level become very important. And that's probably the, you know, the interesting evolution that we've seen ML and AI and, and, and something that we are very committed to is moving it from you know, something that's really used personalization, you know, these sort of marketing or, or, or marketing technology, sales technologies, through to really replacing the sort of critical decisions that humans make. But that, as I said, you know, requires this different level of rigor. And there's a lot of work that goes into building a platform that supports 
decision making like that and can support it at global scale, you know, with very large use cases. And so that's where we've been doing a lot of work because we don't see the need for our customers to go and build all of that technology themselves. But likewise, the kind of more mainstream platforms aren't yet really dealing with that level of decision making. They haven't yet evolved to that point. And so there is a lot of work generally to be able to be done to get to that point. So that's where we focus our efforts. And that's really, as we scale out that platform, we're, we're really focused on getting that as a predefined platform for software as a medical device. So increasingly, we're seeing these AI decisions being made in clinical practice, which will be needed to be reviewed by the FDA or the TGA. And so having a best practice way of doing that that's already gone through you know, an approvals process with those regulators allows people to build you know, these new medical products and get them to market much faster. And presumably de-risk those efforts somewhat. Absolutely. So tell me this, you're obviously Australian-based in Brisbane. Are you able to sell offshore right now, that platform? And then how does like the services side of the business obviously doesn't scale in the same way that the software potentially can? So how are you evolving in that respect? Yeah, I'll, I'll deal with export markets first. So at the moment, a decent proportion of our business, round numbers, half of it comes from overseas customers. Our two big markets being North America and Singapore as the two hubs that we're mostly selling into now. COVID, in many ways, I think as an Australian business has been a real enabler. It's meant that I've got to spend less time on QF15, uh, which has been nice, although I'm looking forward to seeing Alan in the skies again soon, hopefully. But it, you know, it has allowed us to be much more of a level player with the Americans or with the providers in Singapore because the tyranny of distance is no longer as important because everyone can get on a Zoom call at the same time, although I am now very used to getting up very early in the morning. So I think it's been a real advantage for us. But as those markets start to open up, we're already seeing it in Singapore. Singapore's more like Australia in how open it is. And it's going back to people being in the office and going back to physical meetings where we're seeing the the push for our customers to have someone there to be able to, to look after them as that expectation comes back that they can talk to someone physically. And so I think that if you think about the first part of COVID where actually we all went to Zoom and that's how everything got done, for Australian businesses, that actually was quite a leveler. But actually, as we come out of COVID, particularly with our vaccine rollout where it is, we are likely not going to be able to go to those markets at the same time that those markets start to open up. And actually, so that that kind of catch up will reduce and we've got a gap that we've got to fill. And so that's something that we're thinking about a lot. The The second part of your question is about the services business. Now, as you said, we're not VC backed. We've, we've taken on a small amount of private capital, friends and family, but it's it's very small with proportion to our business. It's always been a conscious decision for us. We've to date really wanted to be the masters of our own destiny and take some risks and some big bets along the way. That may change at some point in the future, but it, it's certainly you know, been a good thing for us to date. The services business, as you mentioned, it doesn't scale, you know, exponentially. It scales linearly and and almost uh, has diminishing returns because you know the more people you have, the harder it gets to manage. So that is definitely something that we are, I wouldn't say grappling with. We've got very clear strategies. There's a a number of patterns across the sectors that we work in that we've been working on for a number of years now that we've seen rolled out to a few customers, and so. The process is about productizing those, packaging them up, and allowing them to scale within those industries. But I think what the services businesses allowed us to do is get really close to our customers, get really close to the problems that they're having. And then we've been able to build solutions which are 
I think, much less obvious to an outsider, but much more valuable to an insider because they're really solving the critical problems in, in some of those businesses. Could I ask you a couple of questions, really? I mean, you, you touched on a point about running a business out of Australia, which is kind of interesting. So I want to uh, get into that a little bit more. But at a very basic level, who are your competitors now? And I'm assuming that would involve, you know, several or many bigger multinational players. And how many of them have approached you to acquire your business? Yeah, the competitive landscape for us is really interesting. And there's a couple of different sort of sectors we think about in terms of a a core machine learning services provider that builds machine learning solutions. There are a number of great Australian businesses that are growing that are sort of similar in size to us. There's some really big global private equity-backed organizations which are increasingly coming to Australia, but are very active in the North American and Singapore markets. You know, the big four consultancies are increasingly active in this space, particularly Deloitte, I think, has been out um, in front in Australia, but, you know, the others not, not so far behind. So that that GSI world as well is a competitor for us. We actually find ourselves often not competing with, but the tension with internal teams. Our client base is generally, you know, large enterprise. And so there is an internal capability almost in every large enterprise these days in machine learning and AI or multiple internal capabilities. And so understanding where, you know, software like ours and provider like ours fits is, is really important. And they can become a, not a competitor, but, you know, we have to make sure that we're engaging those teams and that we're, we're sort of accepted by those teams as being part of the broader team working on the problem. And then finally, there's always an interesting relationship with the likes of Google and Amazon, which we partner with very closely. But there's a, you know, there's a tension there between, you know, technologies we build and technologies they build and their professional services teams and our professional services teams. So it is a very interesting landscape. Now, in terms of have we been approached for exits? Yes, you know, providers across that whole spectrum have approached us. It's not something that we have looked to do yet in our journey. We, we think that we've got a, a lot of really exciting runway in front of us and exciting projects. And doing something like that now would probably undervalue the business because a lot of them are looking at us as a machine learning services provider. But as our product suite comes to market and comes to fruition, that will you know fundamentally change the look and value of the business. So that's the journey that we're really committed to. And I think at the moment, I'd be interested if you're hearing this from, from other people, but it is an increasingly acquisitive market. There's quite a lot of money out there looking for looking for things. And yeah, we have seen a, an uptick in that activity this year, definitely. Yeah, well, look, I, I would think so, just particularly in the market that you're in. I'm, I'm sort of wondering what, obviously, you haven't taken on, you know, you've done a friends and family round, if you like but haven't taken on VC, as you come out of COVID, you've described this, uh, you know, there's a gap that Australia will face, but regardless, any kind of international expansion is going to kind of cost some money. So is there any rethink on, on VC? Is there like, what's the, you know, without giving away the, you know, without giving away trade secrets, where are you up to on that thinking? Yeah, I, look, your observation is correct. We we know that we need to physically enter those markets that we're operating in. Otherwise, we're, we're going to, be challenged to grow as much as we want to in those markets. And we have product and platform that we're investing in. And you know that investment at the moment has to be proportionate to the free cash flows generated by the services business. And so that is a limiting factor. Um, so we're aware of that. I, I wouldn't say we've made any decision either way, but I wouldn't be surprised if we did execute a, a round to help accelerate some of those activities in, in the coming months. Okay. Let's talk about talent. 
Yeah, my favourite topic. <laughs> yeah, you've got 50, 50 odd people working with you now. I want to start by asking, as Australians, as or as the Australian education system or higher education, are we any good at this stuff? Where are we good at this stuff? And I'm just going to assume that there's a terrible shortage of people anyway, but I'll let, let you take it away. Where are you getting your people and how are you plugging them in? Yeah, it's a great question. And talent is a, a real challenge for us, as I think it is anyone that's operating in a, in a deep tech capacity in Australia. I'm not going to sit here and say Australia is the best software producing nation in the world or anywhere close to it. That's just a fact. We have some, we have some brilliant talent here in Australia, but in terms of just sheer quantity of talent um, and, and seniority of talent and, and number of like amount of miles in legs, markets like America are just so, so far ahead. And so this is a this is a real challenge. I think that one of the challenges we have to think about plugging in Australia is that that experience, that, you know, the number of people in America that have had exposure to hyperscalers, to, you know, global software businesses that have worked in, you know, major engineering teams and big engineering efforts is just, we simply don't have that sort of depth on our bench here in Australia. And we've Got to work out how to fill that because it doesn't matter how many really brilliant young people we have coming up into the sector, which we do, and I'll, I'll touch on that briefly. There needs to be the, the appropriate mentorship and guidance to help those people learn the skills that they need to to be able to achieve the things that we want to achieve. And I, I see that as being a pretty critical gap for us here in Australia. And there's a lot of competition around those those people. Um, there are quite a number here, and obviously great businesses like. Canva and Atlassian and you know Google's base in Sydney, et cetera, you know, there are brilliant engineering people there. But in terms of quantity versus our aspirations, I'm not sure that we have what we need. In terms of I think a lot of really brilliant young people are attracted to the software market. I think it's become a more attractive career proposition over even the last five years, um, particularly the last 10 years. And our universities are by and large doing a good job to teach the fundamentals that matter for good engineering. So for us, you know, we're very focused on trying to find talent at that penultimate or graduating universities. We work very closely with UQ and QUT to identify and, and get that talent in early, you know, doing paid summer internships and, and things to identify that talent coming through. But you've always got a break because you can only have so many young engineers coming up as a ratio to seniors able to help them grow and mature in their careers. And that's generally where we find the pain point is is finding those people that can help grow that level of our organization okay well let's assume that brisbane's an attractive place to live as, as we all all know beautiful one day perfect the next so how do we get those people i mean through the pandemic year i guess you know people have had various strategies with the borders shut but if we think these borders are going to be opening up in the next several months or year or 18 months, what should government be doing to make it more attractive or more accessible to get some of these people into the country? Is uh, anything an uh, answer to that? Something? Uh, <laughs> the Look, I, I think that they're, and particularly if you're in the US right now, you know, and they're, they're getting back on the right track, but there was a real opportunity for us to attract a lot of talent. I think we missed an opportunity, to be honest. We did actually get a lot of talent back. There was quite a number of people that you know were were expats and working in Silicon Valley or, or working elsewhere in the world that did come home over the last six to nine months. We've got a, a team member here, George. He was with the the SageMaker team in in Seattle in AWS, and and he moved back, and we were lucky enough to to pick him up when he moved back. And he's a great member of our team and brought a, a whole lot of experience to our bench. But 
I think that what we missed was attracting those people that weren't necessarily expats, but were sort of saying, well, maybe, maybe I do want to move to Queensland, Australia, where it's open. You know, we can go to the pub. Also, we can go surfing every day because the beaches are great and so on. I mean, and if you live in Silicon Valley, the, the cost of living is pretty, you know, pretty amazing. You can do very well here in Brisbane, you know. So look, I, I think some concerted effort would be great to see to attract that talent. Obviously, we've got the talent visa, which we use, but during COVID, because we it became so difficult to get flights and get here and two weeks quarantine and so on, I think a lot. You know, we, we didn't make as much of that as we did. Actually, another another Australian expat that moved back is Jeremy Howard, the founder of Fast AI. He's recently relocated to Brisbane from Silicon Valley, right? So Fast AI is now based here in Brisbane, which is pretty exciting for us in, in Queensland. So we did see some really high profile people move out here. I just would have loved to have seen more. I think at the moment, what we're seeing as well is we we are seeing wage pressures in this sector. So we're seeing that the number of job ads is increasing. The amount of people on the market is, you know, not because we used to fill that job growth with a lot of net import of skills, and that net import just isn't there at the moment, and that's causing quite a, a bubble in the sector, and it's it's being seen right across all the capital cities. Yeah, I guess I mean you can only hope that this is an area that's being looked at very closely by government right now. I'm talking to Nick Ferkelson, the CEO, co-founder of Brisbane AI company, Max Kelson. A couple more things that I, I want to ask you, Nick, specifically, I suppose, for well, one thing, do you guys work with institutional research at all? Like, are you involved in any kind of translational research out of universities or out of CSIRO or any of those? We are. So we've got, um, we're a partner in the RMIT Centre for the new ARC Centre for Automated Decision Making and Society. We're a partner in the CIRES ARC Training Centre for Information Resilience at the University of Queensland. And over the last three years, we've worked very closely with the Queensland Institute of Medical Research, QIMR Berghofer, to develop our AI and genomic diagnostic capability. So very much involved in deep tech, which is, I guess, it's an area that we haven't always uh, covered ourselves in glory as a country, getting that IP out of universities and into commercial products. No, ab- absolutely not. And I think that you know we've learned a lot in our journey, particularly with, with our colleagues at QIMR Berghofer, and I think that they've learned a lot on the journey as well, working in a partnership with a commercial organization and focusing on that translational piece. But, you know, all those lessons aside, you know, there's no way we could have done what we've been able to do with the the business that we're building in in the diagnostic space without that partnership. And it continues to be a very deep and very important partnership to us. So Broadly, if I look at the sector, I think universities are getting a lot better at the way that they engage the private sector and the way that they look at translating their research. Their their thinking has evolved just in orders of magnitude over the last five years, I think, which is really exciting because there is a huge amount of IP in those organizations, which is unique to Australia and absolutely should be out there being commercialized and, and putting us on the map. Okay, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions I ask everyone. It's basically what what's government done well and then what should it keep doing and what government is not doing so well and what should it definitely stop doing? When we look across the policy landscape, here's your chance to, to uh, hand out some bouquets and brickbats. Okay, so what has it done well? I think that the focus when Malcolm Turnbull was PM and the ideas boom, but a lot of that legacy actually still exists. It still remains with us, which was 
to move to more, you know, or, or a set of grants that were about engaging industry. So the CRCP projects was one that, that we are active in and, and were awarded a few years ago, an excellent way to get the likes of QI Berghofer and us close together to work on something. Likewise with the ARC linkage grants. So I think that just that tweak in grant structure to try and involve particularly Australian SMEs, it's not about, you know, that IP then going to big international corporations. It's about being able to work with Australian SMEs to translate R&D and deep tech investment in Australia has been really successful and successful for us here at Max Kelson. The other big nod I will give is to the Queensland government and previous minister, Minister Kate Jones, for setting up the Queensland AI hub. Really, this was them looking at a, a, a meetup that, that actually I helped run and my, my esteemed colleague who's now in Austin, Texas, Natalie Renz created, which was a 4,000-person community just talking about building AI here in Queensland that, that was founded in 2016, they basically said, that's a great thing. You know, Let's put $5 million into turning that into something that's bigger and being able to do more education and bring younger people up, You know, sing about our successes more. So I think, I think that's been a, you know, it's, it's ongoing. We're, we're involved in that project, but it's exciting to see the state governments lean in. You know, Victoria right now is on a, a pretty impressive streak of programs, which is going to be really interesting to see how they play out. But I, I think the strategy down there is is really impressive and Victorians should be really excited about, about what's happening down there. So they're probably the good points. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to go into the things that we're not as happy about. Well, why don't you give us some top points? How's that? Yeah. Look, I, and I, I don't think any of these are unique. I would love for someone in the government, in the federal government, senior, preferably the prime minister, to get up and say software is an important sector for this country moving forwards. We hear it about manufacturing and tourism and everything else. The world, I hate to break it to everyone, the world is software now. Everything is software, right? The biggest companies in the world are all software companies. And yet, our policymakers seem completely incapable of saying the word software. So that that to me is totally perplexing. And we talk about the technology sector as not an enabler, as, as sort of something that's, you know, the language that's used around the technology sector doesn't reflect the opportunity that that sector provides to Australia, you know, over the next five decades, right? So I, I would just like to see us get the, you know, our sector get the recognition and the impetus from, you know, publicly from policymakers to say, yes, this does matter. Yes, this is important. And yes, as Australia, we are going to evolve from digging things out of the ground, which we will still do, and manufacturing things, which we will still do, but we will also build software and ship it to the world and export it and create a sector here for what is the most transformative technology we've you know, seen in 100 years um, by far. The second is our good old friend, the R&D tax incentive, which I've written on this topic and, and been public on this topic. is a great, is an excellent piece of policy and should stay. The main thing we need is clarity. And again, it comes back to software. There seems to be a view that software isn't R&D, you know, that R&D is done in a lab or, you know, done with physical things and can't possibly be done with software. And this causes businesses like ours and across the sector, as I, James, I know you, you've talked about a lot of grief and, and, you know, makes compliance cost and risk of accessing that program very high and undermines really the effect that it has. So, you know, R&D, I think should stay. I personally, obviously think it should be expanded to include R&D focused software activities. You know, if you're building a, a new feature for your internet banking app, that is not 
you know, R and D. I, I totally agree with that. But building a new big data technology is R and D, whether it's software or, or hardware. So I think that mainly that the qualification should be clarified so that the risk and compliance costs go down and it's easier to access. And I think it should be expanded to include or to be clearer in including software R&D. Yeah, I don't think you're a lone ranger there. And uh, you make a very good point about the Prime Minister having to say this stuff. The leadership comes from the top. Sure does. Uh, very, very influential. Look, we will start wrapping up now. I'm going to finish by uh, asking you to put the crystal ball into effect. Uh, what does Max Kelson's next year look like and what's its next five years look like? What are the priorities? What is, what's the goal? Yeah, I think in the next year, we bring a number of products to market that we've been working on here for a couple of years, which is really exciting. And we see our platform evolve and particularly evolve into that software as a medical device space. Whether we see the geographic expansion into the US and Singapore in the next 12 months isn't clear to me yet. It's all going to depend on what happens in those markets with the vaccine and, and them opening up and what happens with our you know ability to travel. It's very hard to hire people and you can't sit across the table from them. I think it's the, the one thing that Zoom hasn't quite solved yet. The next five years, we would see ourselves absolutely being present in those regions. We'd see ourselves being a, you know, a headcount significantly larger than where we are now and increasingly seeing our revenue streams come from our product and platform businesses rather than our services business. All right, Nick Thurkelson from Max Kelson AI Software. Thanks very much for joining us. There's a whole bunch of other areas I wanted to get into, but let's, uh, let's draw a line through it there. Thanks. Thanks, Nick. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco Podcast. Please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And please go over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our recent stories on tech, innovation, and public policy. Or you can follow us on social media to ask us any questions or be a guest on the show. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you a great week ahead.